0: The following resource is from DesiringGod.org. As we begin, I would like to ask you a favor, namely that you would test everything I say by the Word of God, by the Bible, because most of you don't have any idea who I am. There's no reason that you should trust me. There are a lot of people traveling around the world saying all kinds of things, many of which are not true. And maybe I'm one of those people. Now how would you know that? There's only one way to know whether what somebody says about God is true. And that is, does it correspond to what's in this book, the Bible. So the favor that I'm asking you to give me is to not take my word for it, but to put my word through the grid of this book. So I regard my job here and wherever I preach my job is to number one make as plain as i can the realities that are in this book and then to try to show you that they really are in the book it's not enough for me to just say the bible says i've got to show you that the bible says And then thirdly, that I would help you respond in a way with thoughts and with feelings and with actions that correspond to the value of the realities that you see in the book. So that's my job. So Father, I ask for your help because I can't make that happen I can't create in the hearts of these people emotions and affections that correspond to your value. That's a miracle, and so I ask for the miracle to happen. So give me your help, please, and grant them ears to hear and hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin by turning to the Psalms, Psalm 16, and we're gonna look at verse 11 for just two or three minutes. And the point of looking at Psalm 1611 is to set the stage for everything else that I'm going to say. Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life, referring to God, you, God, make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So here are seven brief observations about that verse. One, there is a path that leads to joy. It's called the path of life. Number two, God is the one who is showing us this path. God shows us the path that leads to joy. Number three, the joy that he leads us to is Full, full, not 99% joy and 1% frustration, full, 100%. Number four, the path leads to pleasures forevermore, not 80 years. I'm not interested in pleasures that only last 80 years. I want 80 million years. Or I'm not interested. And this says, on this path you find pleasures forever. Number five. This promise is yours if you are in Christ. I say that because in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20 it says all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. So if you're in Jesus every promise in the Bible Old and New Testament is yours. Number six This full and lasting joy is found only in the presence of God. The point of this verse is not to say, well, here's one possible way to find full and lasting joy. There are many other places where you can find full and forever joy. That's not true. This verse means you get on this path and go to this God, and because of the kind of God that he is, you find full and lasting joy. No other place. And seven, following this God-appointed path, therefore, is your duty. It's an obligation. God is calling you. Get on the path. Don't be indifferent to your joy. Don't be careless about pleasures. Don't settle for anything less than the the pleasures and the joy that you find on this path with this God. Get on the path. That's the implication of verse 16. So, what I've been doing for the last 50 years of my life is trying to understand the foundations and the implications of that verse. And what I'm going to do with you now, for the rest of our time together, is give you seven reasons for why all of you should pursue your full and lasting pleasure in God. You should. So many Christians think joy or pleasure at God's right hand or delight are optional. They may come, they may not come. It's not my job to seek them, in fact, it's probably wrong to seek them, wrong. And I'm here to tell you it's not only not wrong, it's your duty, it's your obligation, it's your calling in life. You should get up in the morning and get on the path pursuing full and lasting pleasure in God. That's what I'm here to talk about. So I have, have seven, seven reasons why you should do that. So here we go. Number one, it's our duty to pursue full and forever pleasure in God because we are commanded to be happy in God. We are commanded by God to be happy in God. All over the Bible, I'll give you some examples. Psalm 37 verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. That's a command, not a suggestion. Psalm 32 verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. That's a command. Psalm 67 verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. (coughs) Psalm 100 verse 1, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his, (laughs) come before him with joyful singing pastors sunday school teachers lay people serve the lord with gladness it's a command philippians chapter 4 verse 4 rejoice in the lord always again i will say rejoice matthew 5 verse 11 blessed are you when others revile you and and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. How should you respond? Rejoice in that day. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. And on and on and on we could go. Verse after verse after verse, we are commanded to be happy in God. It is not I don't even know if this is an image. Icing on the cake. (laughs) It's it's not optional. It's not extra. It's right at the center of who we are in Christ. Now, here's an objection that I have heard many times. I was on a panel one time with, uh, I'll tell you who it was, Elizabeth Elliot, one of my great heroes. I love Elizabeth Elliot. She's with Jesus now. And she said to me on the panel, I think this was in England. We were sitting on a panel, and she said to me, John, I don't think you should tell people to pursue pursue joy. You should tell them to pursue obedience. Doesn't that sound like Elizabeth Elliot? Pursue obedience. I said, yes, I want to tell people to pursue obedience. But when you compare, the pursuit of obedience and the pursuit of joy, that's like comparing fruit and apples. Apples are one of the fruit. So what I'm doing, Elizabeth, is being more specific. You tell me, tell them to pursue obedience. Yes, I'm telling them to pursue one particular act of obedience. Be happy. So, the first argument, the first reason for why you should pursue your joy in God is because it is commanded. One more objection. People will say, you can't command the emotions. Emotions aren't like that. I mean, you could command me, pick up your Bible. Pick it up. I can use my will and my muscles and pick it up. Now, command me, feel sad. Right now, feel sad. Feel fear. Feel happy. And what am I supposed to do? That's, that's a very unbiblical objection. You know why? because emotions are commanded all over the Bible, everywhere. Emotions are commanded. I'll give you some examples. The 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. What's that? Covetousness is a desire you should not have. Desires come. I want this. I want this. And God says, stop that. Don't experience that. Stop it. And you're supposed to stop it. Don't covet. Or contentment. Hebrews 13, 5. Be content with what you have. That's a command. Be content. Satisfied. What about earnest, heartfelt love? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Love one another earnestly from the heart. This is not a command to do nice things for each other. This is a command to have a particular kind of heart toward other people <coughs> hope is commanded Psalm 42 verse 5 hope in God fear is commanded Luke 12:5 fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell peace is commanded Colossians 3:15 let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Zeal is commanded. Romans 12, 11, Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Sorrow is commanded. Romans 12, 15. Weep with those who weep. That's not a command for you to be hypocritical. Really weep really feel sorrow when you're in the presence of sorrow that's a command tender heartedness is a command Ephesians 4:32 be tender hearted forgiving one another gratitude feeling thankful is a command Colossians 3:15 be thankful i don't i don't accept that objection you can't command the emotions piper God can and he does dozens of times. And the reason he can and does is because he's God and can tell you to do what's right whether you're able to do what's right or not. (coughs) My guess is there are hundreds of you in this room right now that cannot obey the command, delight yourself in the Lord. That's a problem. And I'm here to help with it. But don't blow it off. Don't say, well I can't make it happen right now, therefore it can't be commanded. That's unbiblical. You need to cry out to God for a new heart. And that's what He does. So argument or reason number one for why we should pursue our joy is because it's commanded. Reason number two, we should pursue our full and and lasting joy because conversion to Christ, the, the new birth, conversion is the awakening of a superior pleasure in God. That's what happens when you're born again. Pleasures in the world shift over onto pleasure in God, in Christ, in His Word, in His way, in His works. That's what happens in the new birth. The new birth is not only about new ideas. The devil has all the right ideas and he hates them. He hates them. New birth is about what you hate and what you love, what you enjoy. So here's the key verse. you are supposed to test everything I say by the Bible, remember? So here's the key verse, Matthew 13, 44. I read this verse so many times before I saw a little phrase The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and then from his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What's the point of that? Jesus Christ is the king, right? He came into the world. He said, the kingdom of God is among you. And some people stumble over that treasure and said, whoa! This is worth everything. This king is worth everything. And they're willing to sell everything and and have him. That's conversion. That's what happens when you get saved. Christ was boring, mythological, Who cares about Jesus? I want money. I want success. I want fame. I want a house. I want a wife. I don't want to go to hell. But Jesus is disinterested. He's not interesting. And then, pow! you're on your face. And Jesus is everything. That's called conversion. That's what's happening here. Man's walking through a field and he stumbles on a a chest. He opens it and it's full of gold and silver and precious stones. And he sells his car and he sells his house. He sells all of his books. Because they don't mean anything anymore. Jesus is infinitely valuable to him. And the phrase that I missed for years was the phrase, From his joy, you see that in the last sentence? Then from his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. So, when he sold his house, when he sold his car, when he sold his books... He wasn't saying, well, I guess in order to be a Christian you have to give up stuff. You're not a Christian if that's the way you think. You're not. Christians delight in Jesus more than anything. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's about our hearts. Do we cherish, love, delight treasure, embrace. Are we satisfied in Jesus more than anything? That happens in the new birth, and therefore my second reason for why you should pursue that joy is because that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be converted. Reason number three. It should be your duty, it's your calling, you should pursue full and lasting pleasure in God because... Being supremely satisfied in God above other things is part of what saving faith is. Let's look at John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me Will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, there are two statements there, and they are parallel to each other, aren't they? The first one is He who comes to me will not hunger, and the second one is He who believes in me will never thirst. You can lay them on top of each other. And so thirsting corresponds to hungering. You never thirst, you'll not, you'll not hunger. And believing corresponds to coming. Right? So I wonder how you would define saving faith on the basis of that verse. Saving faith here's how I would do it. Saving faith is a coming, this is not physical, I'm not walking anywhere, because he's in heaven. I'm I'm coming spiritually, I'm moving in my heart, I'm reaching, I'm out, I'm embracing, I'm I'm coming to Jesus to find the thirst. Of my soul, the longings of my soul, the achings of my soul satisfied in Him. That's faith. Which is why faith is such a powerful thing to change your life, and why so many people are not changed because they don't have faith. That faith. We've, we've, we've turned faith into such an intellectual thing, it has no power. And therefore, so many parts of the Bible don't make any sense. If, if you are a Christian, whether you have used these words or not doesn't matter to me. But if you are a Christian, your heart and your soul have come to Jesus and embraced Him as the satisfaction of your thirst and your hunger. That's what it means to be a Christian, to have saving faith. Argument number four, or... Reason number four for why you should pursue your joy in God all the time. Because to find your superior satisfaction anywhere else but in God is the essence of evil. The essence of evil, all evil, essence. Evil is bigger, but this is the essence. The essence of evil, what makes evil really evil, is that it always involves finding more pleasure in something other than God. Let's go to Jeremiah, chapter 2, verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. What are they? Number one. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Number two, they have hewed out, dug out for themselves cisterns, wells for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's an amazing definition of evil, isn't it? goes right to the heart of every evil. I mean, pick an evil. I mean, we're so humanistic. We're so man-centered. We think real evil is when you hurt somebody. That's not the real evil. The real evil, if you hurt somebody, is they're in the image of God. Don't you touch God. Evil has to do with God. What makes evil, evil is here he is and he's in this room and he's offering himself right now as the fountain of living water. To every one of you, I am a never-ending fountain of all-satisfying water. And if you, if you put your tongue on that fountain, let me taste Let me test you, God. Let me taste. I don't like it. I'm gonna dig a well. You're evil. I mean, pick an evil person in history. That's what you are. If you taste God and turn away, from the creator of the universe who is freely offering you. Let me add this, he offers this to you at the cost of the life of his son. Listen, I'm not, I'm not picking on you. I have two children in this condition. So when I'm I'm looking out at you, knowing that many of you in this room do not enjoy the fountain of living waters, I would give my life right now for these sons of mine. In a minute, and for you. And God already did. So I want you to know what evil is Evil is tasting God and preferring something else, that's evil. And the reason the world is in the condition it's in is because Adam and Eve committed that evil and we've all inherited it and we're born loving other things more than God. It might be good to read what Adam and Eve did. This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it's going to be delicious, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was to be desired to make one wise, wiser than God, I can make my own decisions, thank you. You can get out of here and leave me alone because I've got now wisdom. I know how to do sex. I know what marriage is. You know, I do. And they ate. And she also gave some to her husband and he was with her and he ate. Good for food, delight to the eyes, desire to make one wise. Here's God, the fountain of living water. Here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they look and they say, see you later, God. I want the tree. That's what all of us have done. All of us. Every temptation in your life is that temptation. Is he worth it? Is he precious? Is he beautiful? Is the fountain flowing? Am I drinking? Am I being satisfied by God? Or is the world constantly conquering me? That's argument number four for why you should pursue joy in God because it is the essence of evil not to. Number five. We should pursue our full and lasting joy in God because Jesus' teaching about self-denial is based on this pursuit of joy. Now, I know that sounds backward. That, that's probably not gonna make any sense yet. Because what I'm saying is, the argument that is often brought against me, Piper, you're telling people to indulge themselves in the pursuit of pleasure. And Jesus said, deny yourself. Whoever would come after me, let him deny himself. So you're a bad teacher. You're dangerous. So you need to test me. Let's go to the Bible, Mark chapter 8, verse 34. This is just one of several classic, beautiful, God-inspired, Jesus-spoken words about self-denial. Here's what he says. Mark 8, 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So let's make no mistake. There is real self-denial in the Christian life. There is a real cross. And you know what a cross is? (laughs) It's not a nagging wife its death. The old John Piper must die. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You must die. So if anybody asks, when John Piper came to Holland, did he sell you a bill of goods by telling you to seek your happiness? You'll say, yes, he did tell us to seek our happiness. But he also happened to say, we must die. Because Jesus said, you must take up your cross. Crosses are for execution. And you must deny yourself many things. Many things must you must deny yourself. Okay, so I believe every word of Mark 8, 34. Here's the question. How does Jesus motivate verse 34? You're supposed to die. You're supposed to deny yourself. You're supposed to follow Jesus. Now, how does he motivate that? Where does the strength come from to do that? And verse 35 gives you the answer. So let's read verse 35. For, and you see that little word for at the beginning? That's because this is a a foundation, an argument, a ground. For, whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. What's the argument? <laughs> what is the argument? What's the motivation? You don't want to lose your life so lose it. You want to save your life, don't you? Yes, you do, and I want you to save your life. That's what Jesus is saying. I want to save your life. so be willing to lose it in my service. That's the argument. This argument is based on the pursuit of joy. The argument would make no sense if you shouldn't want to be saved and be with God forever. Full joy forever. So, of course, we will deny ourselves. We will deny ourselves anything that gets between us and our joy in God. Oh, a thousand things get between you and your joy in God, kill them, Paul said, put to death what is earthly in you, you will live if by the Spirit you kill the sins of the body, I'm not talking about other people, you don't kill other people, you kill your sin, and that's self-denial. Oh, I believe it. Every day I fight it. I'm putting things to death every day in my life. I'm turning off videos and I'm turning on the Bible over and over again. I am angling my life. Joy, joy, joy in God. Not you, not you, not you. That's self-denial. Not, not, not. Give me gold. I don't want you tin. Give me a holiday at the sea. We'll talk about that this afternoon. Not a slum. Reason number 6 we I've got two more, it is your duty you should pursue your joy in God because you cannot love people, love people the way you should if you are indifferent to your joy in God. So let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, I know this must sound strange because most of us think, look, if I'm constantly thinking about pursuing my joy, then I'm not gonna be caring for other people. Well, that would be true if your joy was in money, but it's not true if your joy is in God. And I'll try to show you why that is from these two verses. This is 2 Corinthians 8, And before I read it, let me explain the situation. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, that's the lower tip of Greece, and he is comparing them to the Macedonians who are the northern part of Greece, Philippi, Thessalonica, and he's using the Macedonians as an example of generosity because he's moving through the churches, taking up a collection for the poor, and he wants the Corinthians to be generous when he comes. And the reason I think these two verses describe love for people is because in verse 8, That's what Paul calls it. In verse 8 he says, I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. In other words, they just showed love in their generosity. Now I want you also to show love. So now we're ready to read verses 1 and 2 And what you should be asking as you read this is, where does love come from and how would you define it? We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So I'm interpreting the wealth of generosity. They gave and gave and gave. The generosity, I'm saying that's what love does. That's what love is. Somebody is in need, I move toward the need, and I give. I give. I I want you to, I want to help you. That's what love is. I don't want you to hurt anymore. I want you to go to heaven. And I want you to have relief from your pain. That's what love does. And that's what's happening here. A wealth of generosity. So question number one, where did it come from? Where did that generosity come from? And it's so clear, that's why I'm using this verse, this is so clear. (laughs) It came from the overflow of joy, right? It's just right there in the text. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy overflowed in a wealth of generosity. So, if you ask, where does generosity come from? It comes from an overflow of joy. Joy in what? And that's pretty clear here too. Because, look, they are in affliction. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy. So. They believed in Jesus, and life got worse. Life got worse, not better. Jesus didn't promise that your life would be better. It gets worse. You get a lot more criticism, lots more self-denial, lots more late nights and early mornings because you care for people now. Life gets harder when you're a Christian. So, affliction didn't take away their joy, so obviously their joy is not in comfort, it's not in security, it's not in their safety. Okay, that's one thing it's not in. It's also not in money because it says they're still poor their extreme poverty and their joy overflowed in generosity. So these people are in affliction, they're in poverty, and they're as happy as they can possibly be. So where's the joy coming from? It's not coming from money and prosperity. This is, don't ever say, Piper came preaching a prosperity gospel. You know what I feel about the prosperity gospel. I hate it. Okay, that's clear. This is not prosperity. Preaching. So where's the joy coming from? It's not coming from prosperity. It's not coming from freedom from affliction. It's coming from verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God We want you to know about grace. We want you to know about the God of grace. We want you to know what happens when the grace of God comes down on people's lives. We want you to know about the grace of God and how it's been shown. And then he describes the effects of grace. (laughs) Oh, I love grace. The grace of God. So, here you have a totally pagan people on their way to hell, and Paul visits Philippi. One of them is named Lydia, and the Lord opens her heart to give heed. One of them is a demon-possessed, fortune-telling girl, and Paul casts her demon out, and she gets saved. And one of them is a jailer, and he gets saved. And now Paul's got a little church. (laughs) He's got a rich businesswoman and a slave girl and a jailer. (laughs) I love it and they all tasted grace and their sins were forgiven and the wrath of God was taken away and hell was closed and heaven was open and they were knit together in love and their joy overflowed in generosity. So how would you define love now? Don't don't let the world define love for you. Let the Bible define love for you. Here's my definition of love based on those two verses. Love for people. And the poor in this particular instance. Love for people is the overflow of joy in the grace of God which meets the needs of others. Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. That's my definition of love. Which means, if you don't care about pursuing that joy in God, you will not be able to love people. Period. Unless you just redefine love any way you want. Don't do that. Let the Bible define love. Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. Last argument. Reason. Reason number seven for why we should pursue full and lasting pleasure in God. This is the most important one. I think the one I just gave you is second most important because the first commandment and the second commandment are like that. (laughs) You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I just gave you argument from love of neighbor. You can't do it without joy in God. And now, what about God? What about His glory? I just read in my devotions this morning, just read the end of, of Isaiah this morning and twice in verses six, chapter 60, it, it, it looked out at Israel and said, he is wounded and now he'll heal and he will make you the planting of the Lord, the work of his hands that he may be glorified. And I was just reminded again Like every page of the Bible reminds me, I exist for the glory of God. You exist for the glory of God. You don't exist for you. You exist for the glory of God. So the question is, how does my telling you to pursue your joy do that? give God glory, because if it doesn't, nothing matters that I have said. My argument is this. You should pursue your full and lasting satisfaction in God because God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Where is that in the Bible? Let's go to Philippians chapter one. This is probably one of the most important passages in my life. Philippians chapter one, verses 20 to 23. It is my eager expectation and hope," just stop right there. If you were to ask Paul, what's your greatest passion in life? What's your greatest longing, your greatest hope for your life? This is what he would say. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be magnified, glorified, honored in my body. Stop, there it is. When I came to my church, I was a pastor for 33 years in one church and and I remember my first sermon was from this text. I told the people, look, I'm here for one central reason. I want to eat. I want to drink. I want to sleep. I want to live. I want to preach. I want to teach. I want to pastor. I want to counsel to make Christ look magnificent. That's what that text says, that's what it says, right? I want my body, my hands my mouth, my eyes, everything about me, I want it to count to make Christ look magnificent. And I hope that one of the effects of this conference would be, that's what you want more than anything, Christ magnified. And if you feel like, but that's not what you've been saying. You've been saying, pursue joy in God. And if this seventh argument isn't valid, I have just wasted the last 55 minutes. Let's keep reading. So how, how is Christ going to be magnified in the body of Paul? Whether by life or by death, Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now why would death be gain? And he answers in the next two verses. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's death. My desire is to die and be with Christ because that is far better. So the reason dying is gain in verse 21 is that he gets more of Jesus. He has Jesus here, if you're a Christian, You have Jesus. He lives within you by his spirit. But oh, when you see him face to face without any sin anymore in your life, you will experience him, know him, enjoy him at a level beyond imagination. And that's what Paul said, I want that. I want to be with Jesus. Now, let's trace the argument to see how that relates to magnifying Jesus. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed but that with full courage now as always Christ will be magnified in my body and let's just focus on death. That Christ will be magnified in my body by my death. How will Christ be magnified in my body by my death? For to me, to die is gain. How is it gain? I get more of Jesus. And he's more satisfying than all that life can give. I'm willing to die and leave behind everything this world offers in order that I might have Christ. So would you put Christ over here and everything life has to offer over here? I choose Christ and consider that loss. That's what he says in chapter 3, verse 7. I consider this loss and this is gain. So, he magnifies Christ in his dying by being so satisfied in Christ as he's dying that he considers the loss of everything in this world and the gaining of Christ as gain. The only way that argument works is if Paul is so satisfied in Jesus, so satisfied in Jesus, that everything else is as nothing. So here's my paraphrase of this text. Christ is most magnified in Paul when Paul is so satisfied in Christ that losing the entire world is gain, or to generalize, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. You don't have to choose. We'll talk about this a little bit this afternoon. You don't have to choose between glorifying God and being happy. If you do choose, you fail on both counts. Let me close with a story. Um, I have been married to my wife for 50 years 5-0 50 last December and uh, I've told this story in China I've told it in Russia I've told it almost everywhere I've been because it's, I can't improve upon the point that it makes about argument number 7 So let's pretend it's our anniversary and I'm gonna surprise my wife with some flowers. So I bought a big bouquet of red roses and I put them behind my back and I go home early and I ring my own doorbell, which I don't usually do. Ding dong. And she opens the door and she looks puzzled. And before she can say anything, I say, happy anniversary, Noel. Bring out the flowers. And she says, oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And suppose I say, it's my duty. I read an authoritative marriage manual. And it says that to be a good husband, you should give her flowers on her anniversary, so I'm doing what I'm supposed to do." That's a bad answer. So let's rewind and do it again. Ding-dong. Puzzled look on her face. Happy anniversary, Noel. Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? Because Nothing makes me happier than to celebrate you. There's nothing I'd rather do than spend the evening with you. And so I have a plan tonight. We're going to go out. Why don't you go change clothes? Because we're going to your favorite place. Because there's nobody I would rather spend the evening with than you. Now, that's the right answer, by the way. Why? But why wouldn't she say to me, you are so selfish. Nothing makes you happier than to spend the evening with me. Nothing makes you, you, you happier than to celebrate me. All you ever think about is you, 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 pursuing your joy. You preach about this all over the world. Why wouldn't she say that? If you can answer that question, you understand this entire message, and you know God. Here's the answer. Here's the reason. She would never say that because she knows, you know, and God knows. It's in his book. God knows. When you enjoy someone, you honor them. She feels honored. When I say, you make me glad, you as a person are the one I would like to spend time with more than anybody else. If you say that to somebody, you magnify them, you honor them, you glorify them, and you're seeking your own pleasure. But you just happen to be seeking it in them. So when you knock on God's door, Knock on God's door at the end of your life, and he opens it, and he says to you, why do you want to come in here? If you say, well, I read in the book that this is where you're supposed to want to be, or I don't want to go to hell, those are wrong answers. They're not going to cut it. The answer is going to be when he says, why do you want to be here is, I want to be with you. I want to be with you because you told me in your word and I have tasted it with my tongue that in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you say that to God and you mean it through Jesus Christ, big smiles going to come across his face. He's going to pick you up and whisk you in. But if you tell him, well, I've done all the right things, You will not see a smile on his face. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for all of us now in this room that the miracle would happen of our souls finding the fountain of living water would come to pass. Make that miracle happen, I pray. Give us a taste for Jesus Christ. Give us a taste for you, Father, and your grace so that we are more satisfied in you than anything else because you are more glorified in us when we are more satisfied in you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from DesiringGod.org. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy and share from thousands of resources on our site, including books, sermons, articles, and more, available free of charge. DesiringGod.org exists to help you treasure Jesus more than anything else because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him.